and I catch myself doing this all the time, you write with a white audience in mind. And there are so many negative narratives out there that you feel this pressure to provide this polished, joyful, unproblematic, positive narrative to counter that. But I'm not writing to do that. That's not my job. Welcome to the Alien Chronicles, a podcast about immigrant experiences. I'm your host, Sadia Khan. Our today's guest is Priya Minhas. She is a writer and creative producer from London. Her writing explores South Asian immigrant identity. Priya is also a contributing writer to The Good Immigrant USA. Her writing is also featured in BuzzFeed, Burnt Roti, Cardinal Magazine and Brown Girl Magazines. She is currently based in New York, where she works with artists producing and directing original music content at Vivo. Welcome, Priya. So good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start with your childhood. You grew up in London. Yeah. Uh, what was it like growing up in London what, in what I would define as a very close-knit family? I think it gave me a very, very strong sense of home that I only recognize now in hindsight, having lost that a little bit from moving around a lot. But it really was just a very, it was, a, it was a big family and it was a close family. And you don't always get one with, you know, one doesn't guarantee the other. But, you know, my mum is one of eight. My dad is, I think, one of six. So oh, wow. huge, yeah, huge family and very, very close knit. And you were second generation. Uh, your parents were also born in England, yeah, right? Yeah. So did it make it easier for you to relate to your parents or for them to relate to you and understand each other more? I think so. And, I, and, I, and that's something that I've had more gratitude for and more empathy for the older I get. Looking back at it, they really were. I think there's a line in the essay where I talk about straddling like preservation of, of identity and culture and pushing it forward and progressing. And I think my parents really were given that task of figuring out the, the right balance. Looking back at some of the rules that we had and some of the things they encouraged us to do, I see now that they were trying to give us roots without kind of constricting us or tying us down. But also when, when I see, and I haven't met many second generation kids, but I would assume that since you're more removed from your like original culture, is it something that you struggle with more as as an identifying parameter, or is it easier because you don't have to? It, the burden of being part of that culture is not as much on you as it probably was on your parents or or their parents' generation. I think you can look at it both ways. There, there's days when it feels like you're blessed with this blank canvas, almost, you know, and you can pick and choose the parts that you see valuable and the parts that you don't. There's days where it feels like you don't have an anchor in anything. I think it's a different set of problems. And I absolutely recognize all of the privileges that I do have and all of the choices that I have that sometimes feel like problems but are privileges. But there's this feeling of not really ever being at home in a place. Even for you as a second gen? Yeah, because you're a very, you're kind of hyper aware of your difference. And this may have something to do with the area that I grew up in, but you're not Indian enough. And I wasn't Indian enough even for the, the British Asian community. How so? All of the kind of cornerstones of, of our culture. So practicing religion, 
We didn't really do that regularly. I didn't speak Punjabi. I kind of learned and then gave up. All of the things that kind of, you kind of feel like a bad Indian person. (laughs) It's those things. So I kind of felt this thing of not being enough on both sides. Have you tried to make up for that? Like, have you, like, over the years tried to maybe learn your language or adopt some of the cultural norms that that are more common just to be able to associate more with one culture? Yes and no, because I think language is the biggest thing that kind of hangs over my head for sure. And I can understand it much more. And I can and my my sisters and cousins all laugh because I'm probably speak it one of the best out of all of us. But I think I feel it because there's a lot of guilt associated with why I didn't learn it. It wasn't, you know, my it was one of those things where my parents tried to invest in that. And and I remember, you know, on car journeys and going on vacation and my mum having flashcards with words in Punjabi and and trying to encourage us and, and find ways to make it exciting for us to care and to see the value in it. And we didn't because for us it was like, well, I don't want to spend my Saturday morning doing this thing that reminds me that I'm different from what my friends do at the weekend. And I think as I got older and I realized, okay, well, this is so frustrating now because I can't access my history and I can't talk to my grandparents myself without someone else kind of translating both ways or really understanding word for word what they're saying in the context that they're saying it without it being diluted by my kind of like, oh, I get the gist of it. I kind of get it. So in that sense, that's something that I think I've tried to to reconcile. And then just speaking about my identity or not glossing over it is really important. I think that I always used to like dread going to Indian restaurants with white people when I was at college or, you know, just in the workplace. And, you know, you have little things like having Mendy on and then kind of not looking forward to the questions that are going to come with that. And and now I think I'm in a place where it, it doesn't feel like something that I kind of have to hide or or feel that sense of kind of dread to explain later. You know, you raise so many important points. And one thing that I would like to go back to, how your mom being the first generation, she's still probably put in more effort, you learning your language than mm-hmm. I do as an immigrant, yeah. teaching my kids, my native languages. And, and it's so important like to have that connection. Yeah. And I think it's been proven, there are statistics out there that being multilingual or bilingual helps you in so many other ways. But in addition to that, I, I think the way you talk about your culture, and I've read your essays, and, and we'll talk more about your essays in detail. But one thing that I noticed is that you are unapologetically who you are. So your essays are raw and honest. You don't dumb down for readers. You don't want to, like, you don't explain too many things. In fact, you expect your readers to be able to understand what you're saying. And even now you use the word Mehendi in a very unapologetic way. And that's something that I am really impressed with because I think most of the times, immigrants, first gen, second gen, what we do is that we just take on this responsibility of explaining our culture time and again. And it shouldn't be our burden. It should be a shared responsibility, right? Yeah, and I love that you bring that up because that was something that was a very conscious decision when I was writing. I think when I started writing, I wrote because I was trying to make sense of my identity and and what I was feeling. And I realized other people connected with it. But there's a danger in that sometimes when you're writing about identity that you feel a need to kind of reach neat conclusions and explain everything and kind of come out with an answer at the end. 
And in this essay, I wanted to talk about these rules and play with that expectation of the strict Indian parent or the good Asian girl and make space for contradiction. And I think this this whole notion of explaining time and again, I think that also perpetuates this this idea of uh, otherness in us, right? Because we don't like if if you have if you were white or if I were white, we wouldn't be explaining anything. So this whole notion, I think it's just by default, you you think that I am the other because I have to explain so many things that others don't have. So talking about your essay, and I've said this time and again, I am obsessed with this book. I interviewed Shiman and I was just telling her how amazing this book is. Um, every essay, again, is so raw and so relatable. Yours is one of the best essays that I read in that book, my favorite essays. Uh, so you wrote in your essay that when you were growing up, your family and others would talk about some women in a condescending way, like condescendingly as examples of what not to be. Um, and hence the title, I'm assuming, like women who smoked cigarettes, women who married white men. Um, in your opinion, was it helpful? Did it um, prevent you from doing things that they expected you not you not to do? Or was it like counterproductive? Um, so I don't, I don't even know that I would say it was condescending because by the time... I was hearing these conversations, they really weren't even conversations. It wasn't, you know, something had just happened and everyone was talking about it. It was almost like these um, kind of points of reference or these figures that were part of a collective memory, if that makes sense. But was it like more like a cautionary tale? Than it really was. It was, right? yeah. Because I know there's the whole stereotype of, you know, gossiping aunties. And it really it really was not that. It was more this happened a long time ago to this person and this. And so as a kid and as a as a girl, you start piecing together. Oh, OK. So this thing is, you know, the fact that you focus in on the fact that she remarried a white person or the fact that she ran away from her husband or whatever. You start thinking, OK, that's bad. That's bad. I can't do that. Because again, growing up in a close-knit family, the idea of not having that and being so, you know, being this person that's exiled and not part of the community is terrifying. And it's only years later when I, I don't even know what triggered it, but I started to think about those women and realize, okay, wow, from their point of view, you know, this woman got married at 17. Yeah, and absolutely. was probably, you know, let's say dealing with her sexuality. And that just, there was no space for that. There was no, she probably didn't even have the language for that. And so she ran away and, and looking at the other side of it. And so I don't know that it was helpful because I think what would have been helpful was having space to have those debates, you know, like, okay, let's talk, let's talk about why this happened and what could be going on. And, and I think that would have been helpful. And was there more focus, like disproportionately more, like, focus on women absolutely uh, because yeah. I, I I was going to ask you because I'm assuming men would have like I'm sure men did a lot of things as mm -hmm. well you know but there was focus on women always and and I was laughing about this with my cousin recently but you know she would get in trouble she had a she was dating someone as a teenager and it was like this huge family issue and like everyone knew about it and we were all like oh my gosh you know she has to she can't have her mobile phone she has to have a curfew and whatever and there was a another cousin a guy who had a girlfriend and everyone kind of turned a, a blind eye to it you know and and so and as a kid again you don't recognize that inequality 
so yeah, absolutely focused around women. So Priya, your account of your childhood and you know how how some of things were treated as wrong, and you talk about that very openly in your essays and in other essays. Um, are you afraid that these uh, narratives may perpetuate some of the stereotypes about um, South Asian women or or women of color, like being discriminated or or treated a certain way and not given equal respect as men in in their culture or society does that bother you and if so how do you try to counterbalance that so that's really interesting because that was actually something i thought of when you were asking me about writing in a way that doesn't explain i think i had this fear when i was writing the essay of making it very positive as in i should make it positive right oh, okay. like as in can i write about this and and in trying to subvert or, or play with some of these stereotypes, am I reinforcing them? And I think it, it, for me, it came back down to remembering who I'm writing for. And I catch myself doing this all the time. You write with a white audience in mind. And there are so many negative narratives out there that you feel this pressure to provide this polished, joyful, unproblematic, positive narrative to counter that. But I'm not writing to do that. That's not my job. And I think that was kind of the reason when I wrote about having no sleepovers, that was a really important part for me because in tracing it back and unpacking it and saying, well, actually, my family grew up at a time when there was like a real genuine physical threat to their safety. So it wasn't because we were these like, you know, precious girls that needed to be protected and are not innocent and whatever. It was, no, we're coming from a frame of reference where there really is a real threat and we can't guarantee your safety. And equally, home being this, you know, really, especially for me, this grounding, safe place, that's where we could all protect each other and and be ourselves and have this kind of, it really, yeah. So it was this thing of allowing space in the essay for both sides. And I think you raise an extremely important point because, again, women are considered as transmitters of cultures, Mm -hmm. not just in Indian or Pakistani culture or not just among diaspora, across other cultures as well. And women are like harassed or discriminated. We've seen that with Me Too movement. So I think what the point that you're raising is that, yes, whatever good, bad, ugly, whatever comes, uh, it's important that we own it and, and we don't feel ashamed of of any piece of our identity because that's where when we start feeling ashamed that's when it becomes an issue for others and for us yeah. uh, going back to your essay again you use this really interesting term i was just fascinated with how you explain you know this this term what will people say mm-hmm. And this is this phenomenon. And I always thought it was an Eastern concept used mostly in Pakistan and India. And it couldn't be transported to Western society or at least among diaspora. But can you explain in what ways you experienced it? Like, uh, mm-hmm. that's that's the Urdu version of it, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and did it bother you? Have you seen that? I think it's Hassan Minhaj's Homecoming King. No, I he, have he not. He uses that phrase all the way through it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So I I think in the sense of it being translated over to the West, I think it it definitely takes on a different shape, but the sentiment is the same. And I think it comes from this feeling of, well, if community is safety, then anything you do that may, you know, create a threat to that or or is is dangerous and feared. And and that's that is universal. That's in every kind of way that we group ourselves as humans and communities. That is, I think that sentiment exists. 
for me, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with my parents where they really did want us, or at least how I perceive it, they really wanted us to have things and do things and not be burdened with things. What I saw them wrestle with, and we talked about this while I was writing the essay, is how were they going to be viewed with their parenting style? So in that sense, the way that it translated for me, that that what will people say, it was, I think it sits around my parents in terms of how do we do right by the people that came before them and what we want to do in terms of pushing the boundaries a little bit. And yeah, so it was it was that kind of negotiation that created this, yeah, go for it and do all these things, but also you, you know, be hyper aware of in these situations, in these contexts, you have to modify certain things. And when it comes to parenting um, style of your grandparents and your parents, in your opinion, what are some of the major differences that you see uh, or you saw growing up, like in terms of, because your grandparents, they are immigrants, right? Your parents are Mm -hmm. not. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's interesting because my parents became immigrants when they moved to the US and I saw that transition happen. And it's, again, something we talk about, you know, I... I think we all feel hesitant to claim that title of immigrant because we moved with a lot of privilege. It feels weird to to claim that title when we know where we've, you know, the, what my grandparents went through. Um, but in terms of p- parenting, I think my grandparents, I mean, simple things like my grandmothers weren't really educated or like literate. And my grandfathers worked uh, like 12 hours a day. And, and so that affects how present you are with your family. Mm. and the way that you're able to support your children in in those ways. From a young age, my parents were probably also having to parent their parents. If you think, and and I remember thinking about my dad's mum and the fact that she probably rarely ever left the house or interacted in the UK without her husband or her children being there for her to facilitate that. That's such an interesting perspective because I am an immigrant and when I look at myself and as you pointed out, all immigrants have different narratives. Mm -hmm. Some come from a place of privilege, others don't. And what fascinates me is how I look at myself and I call myself an immigrant. uh, But then there are so many things that are easier for me language, mobility, and and so many other things. But as you pointed out, your grandparents' generation and when they came and how they dealt with so many things that were probably much more difficult, which goes on to show how resilient they were or they are. Because to me, you have to be extremely resilient to be able to do all of that. Yeah. And that's something that to this day, I can't truly process yeah you know we we have these stories that get passed down to us about our grandparents and their first few years and you stop and think about it like I remember there's a I write in the essay about my grandmother her transit to the UK from India was a year you say that and you hear it over the years and then you stop and think about it she spent a full year traveling to the UK with a young child she spent five years apart from my grandfather so he came to the UK first she spent five years alone without him and again like I take for granted that I can kind of zip back and forth between London and New York Mm. but that's five years of you know no FaceTime no nothing no no real guarantee that he was going to come back for her and we take it for granted and that's these are kind of moments and stories that have been so embedded in our family but when you stop and think about the resilience but also a lot of trauma and a lot of it's just very hard to kind of 
translate that to my reality. So how are you dealing with all the anti-immigrant rhetoric right now? And like recently, obviously, President Trump said something like, we are full, like our country is Mm -hmm. full and nobody should come in. As an immigrant, do you engage with people on that or do you just try to steer away from it or not discuss it? And if you do engage, in what ways? I do. I think it's, you can't avoid it for better or for worse, right? It forces people to have the conversation. But I think where my hesitation sometimes comes from is you become the person, like the spokesperson or or the person that, again, it goes back to having to explain and justify. And that's something that makes me uncomfortable. But yeah, it's, it's exhausting. It's, you know, the same thing is going on. The same kind of sentiment is being amplified in the UK at the moment. And it's very... And when you're in this time of trying to figure out where home is and you kind of kind of feels like nowhere at the moment. It's so interesting, Priya, you say that because in my mind and I always I've always felt that, OK, as an immigrant, it's given, as you said, that there are certain expectations you have as an immigrant and you know how people will treat you. Like for me, it's I've lived in the U.S. for more than a decade now and initial few years was as you said like I felt like I was an immigrant then that feeling goes away because you start to feel more at home and everything becomes familiar Mm -hmm. and and especially when you spend most of your adult life in in a, in a foreign land and then you start to call it your adopted home and it is your home, right? And then these questions arise, like all of this, like then then people start doubting you. But even then, I, I always tell myself, I am an immigrant at the end of the day. This is how people will treat me, right? In UK, you're second gen. Like that's what is confusing to me. Like how many generations before we dis- like we feel at home and right. and, and yeah. you know we feel like home is not this like it's not elusive or it the journey has to end somewhere exactly and i think that's what's been the most heartbreaking is you assume that you've been dealt a different set of cards and then all of a sudden the narrative around you is aggressively shaking that and all of a sudden yeah it's like all of those years all of the the fact that you are a yeah there's a generation's difference and it's still not enough you know and that's what again that's something that's been going on in the UK in terms of who who is has a right to stay do you sometimes think or wish that your grandparents had not moved and and they had stayed in India and then your parents would have born there and things would have been easier do you do you ever entertain that idea no, I don't think so, because I'm very grateful for what we have, that I wouldn't ever wish it away in that sense. Or And my mum made a really good point that, you know, my grandmother had six girls in a row. Yeah. And she was like, had we not been in the UK, who, who's to know which one of us would have even have survived at that time? And so it's things like that. And again, everything that I'm grateful for in my life is because of that chain of events that they set off when they moved. If you were to define America in one word, and it's difficult, you can you can define it in a sentence. I don't care. But as an immigrant, someone who's moved recently and with all that's going on, how would you define it? I define it as, as an illusion. And I say that because it feels like we're kind of existing in this house of mirrors at the moment. Hmm. And you look at the education system and, and pop culture and the news and everyone is kind of pushing a version or a fantasy narrative that and I and, and people talk about this all the time but you're you know there's this this idea of America that gets 
churned out and exported around the world. And I think we're at a time where people are being confronted with the fact that that's not the reality and it's not new information. We've just chosen to all buy into a an illusion. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think <laughs> that that's why people are, are kind of reconciling their version of events in terms of what America is built on with what's going on now. And actually, it's the same. It's, it's a consistent same. Absolutely. narrative. Absolutely, yes. But because we've we've got this illusion of a, of a history and an illusion of a present and an illusion of a future, yeah, it's the only way I can describe it is, yeah, like a house of mirrors. Yeah, abs- <laughs> Nothing is really as it seems. Absolutely. So before we end our interview, we'll move on to our rapid fire round. This is like fun questions. We'll get to know you more. We'll start with reading books or listening to music. Oh, no, this is because uh, <laughs> I work in music. So I it's a huge part of my life. And then you're a writer. And then I'm a writer. Exactly. I think. And a lot of what I do in terms of directing and producing is grounded in writing. But I think writing is like a best friend and music is probably like love of my life. You know, so I'm going to go for music. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Right now, it's biryani. So biryani? Go with that. You know, somehow I thought you would say biryani. I don't yeah. know why. My mum makes a healthy version with cauliflower rice. Oh, interesting. And so I've been Oh my God, with cauliflower rice. Yeah, it's great. Uh, <laughs> I, I want that recipe because I've tried cauliflower rice with a few things and I just like, I was terrible. Like whatever I made, it was just it didn't terrible. Work. Yeah, yeah, it didn't work at all. Yeah, I haven't attempted making it myself. Name three things on your bucket list. I'd like to write a book, write a song and then travel because I'm terrible at carving time out, take time off and and see the world. You're moving forward failure? I think in general, there's been periods of my life where I get very, very burnt out. Mm. And that's been really important for me in terms of, especially I think with creative people in general, in forcing you to define yourself outside of your creative output. Your biggest achievement so far? Probably being in this amazing book. Yeah, um, absolutely. But also going back to what we were saying, you know, being able to pick up and build or at least start to build a life somewhere else. Because that, yeah. that, abs- that when I first got here felt impossible. But to build a life that I can actually say I'm proud of here is huge. What is the biggest piece of advice you ever got? I don't know if anyone gave this advice to me, but I read somewhere about thinking about your life in terms of your eulogy and what someone will say about you instead of your resume. Yeah. I think, and this is, you know, immigrant kid, but you, uh, <laughs> it's easy to think about everything that you have to achieve um, instead of how you make people feel and the, the impact that you're going to leave behind. Best Indian restaurant in NYC. I mean, there are so many, I know, but is there one that really stands out? I haven't found one. You haven't? Um, I've only had bad experiences, well, or like mediocre experiences. But I'm surprised. I will say my mum, my parents' home is in, <laughs> in Jersey and I just, I go home. I don't, I don't really eat. I don't choose to eat it here because I can just go home. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Always. Why not tea? I'm just, I actually, I'm always trying to cut down, but I just love coffee. Home is? A memory. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Priya, for sharing your Thank story. You. It was amazing. Um, and guys, buy the Good Immigrant book. It's an amazing book. You love it. And Priya's essay is so raw, honest, and I just loved reading it. And there is so much that you can relate to, even if you're not an immigrant, you should be able to relate to a lot. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected. Stay connected.